when you think of slavery, you most likely picture an African-American on a white southern plantation. But the roots of slavery extended to Native American communities too. So in this episode, we take a closer look at Cherokee freed people, why emancipation didn't necessarily mean freedom, and the complicated relationship with the federal government, as we answer, how did slavery impact Cherokee Nation? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining me on the podcast this week is Dr. Andy Borden, who completed her PhD at UEA in 2017. It considered Cherokee freed people and was interested in questions of race, identity, citizenship, and sovereignty in 19th and 20th centuries. Hello, Andy. Hello. Hi, Liam. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, it's been a while. Just to give context, uh, we, we studied together, um, what, about 10 years ago now? Yeah, I think it is actually. Yeah. Good good decade ago. <laughs> but you have since gone on to to be far smarter than me and get your PhD and I've I've gone on to make podcasts. So uh here here we meet. Oh, I don't know talk about that. <laughs> Reunited at last. That's <laughs> what the people have been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, the glorious reunion. Right. Um so we're gonna go into something quite deep today, I think, that that I'm sure most of our listeners will know. Uh, very little about um, in that I'm sure some people might have um, some knowledge of Native American history, some people might have some knowledge of uh, slavery, but that might not uh, crisscross too much. So let's establish some context first and talk about how slavery had actually embedded itself uh, within uh, not just Native American communities in general, but within Cherokee Nation sort of before the Civil War. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. We we kind of tend to compartmentalise histories in various ways, whether that's the history of slavery, the African-American experience, whether that's Native American slavery or Native American history. And we can become quite siloed in how we think about people in history and their lived experience. But often the world is much messier than that. And those groups, if you like, which are these kind of broad labels, uh, are often... Um, much more entangled than we might think when we we create those distinctions. So, so we're going to talk about the Cherokee Nation particularly today, um, and and something that's really important to establish from the, from the beginning is probably how much variety there is if we were thinking about kind of uh, Native Americans and slavery, which is that some of those communities would never have engaged in any kind of slavery at all. Others might have a history of taking slaves, taking war captives, but later never engaged in what we would consider kind of racial slavery that you we see kind of spreading across the Americas. Whereas we have others like the Cherokees, the Cherokee Nation, who uh, do start to incorporate it into their society, their hierarchies, uh, their economy. You know, it has this kind of broad reaching uh, becomes very omnipresent, a bit like we saw in the American South, um, that more kind of traditional understanding, which is that slavery and its practice and uh, ha- is entangled up in everything. Um, so there's there's a huge amount of variety. So we should keep that in mind that the kind of the Cherokee story, whether that's 
uh, its um, engagement with slavery, its sort of civil war, post-civil war experience, or even kind of how they are engaging or think about race um, or their kind of communities now uh, might be or will be relatively unique. Um, so there isn't a kind of cookie cutter history here that we can we can point to. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk a little bit about the Cherokee Nation's adoption of slavery, mm. um, which uh, was quite a kind of creeping process at the tail end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And, and some of that, and I'm going to speak in broad brushstrokes, so don't bore your listeners to tears, is about modelling and mirroring what's happening with their kind of their uh, American neighbours in the United States or, you know, what had become the United States at that point. They're under quite a lot of pressure to conform, to prove that they're civilised and they're not savages, and, you know, uh, speaking in the language of the time. So, and some of that is just um, uh, quite superficial things, like maybe thinking about how they dress. They're endeavouring to accumulate wealth. You know, they're changing their lifestyles to fit in more and therefore feel more protected from kind of encroachment that kind of thing. So it's it's a somewhat defensive position. And for some members, um, what would become the kind of the elite start to adopt practices like slavery. So it's a, it's a way to engage in the economy. It's a way of saying that they're invested in this similar sort of hierarchies and social organisations. So if you think about geographically where they are, they're Georgia, South Carolina, they are surrounded by what would become the Confederacy. So the if you were mirroring your white neighbours in an in an attempt to show that you, you're not that different, or honestly, just because wealth is quite alluring anyway, right? Like, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily need to be entirely about self-preservation. Um, it can be attractive in its own right. Um, and some of that is, it encompasses slavery because of where they are. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, that it slowly becomes embedded embedded over time as certain portions of the Cherokee Nation become more and more invested um, in um, those those kind of practices, uh, lifestyles, social mores. But it's quite a split, um, a bit like you see in the South anyway, um, the slaveholding South, which is that really slaveholding is only possible for a very small, very wealthy elite. So we're not seeing widespread slaveholding um, or enslavement by Cherokees. It's the kind of, I, I don't know, make a figure up, but let's say the most wealthy, powerful 10% are, you know, are engaging in the practice. Um, and there were huge swathes of the Cherokee population that thought it ran counter to their values um, and traditional Cherokee ways. So there are kind of moral questions um, about, the, about holding people in slavery um, and everything that comes with that. Um, similar debates that you were seeing across the US are happening within the Cherokee Nation mm. on a much smaller scale. Yeah, and I, I mean, firstly, there's there's such an irony, isn't there, in in adopting slavery to to, to not appear as savages, but uh, which is right. ridiculous. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, it's that value system that that confuses me because, as you say, they were they were mirroring, they were trying to to appear to to conform to to what was expected of them mm-hmm. by the the white settlers basically so i'm wondering if that was reflected in the way that that they treated their slaves in in sort of the conditions that that they kept their slaves under and was it was it a bit more humane for want of a better word it's it's an interesting question because for a very long time there was an idea say in in the historiography and that that native american slaveholders would be kinder um kinder than their white counterparts 
But actually, um, there isn't really any evidence that that is the case. And there, and there are kind of other things that point to it being much the same. Um, so um, uh, same levels of violence, new coercion, um, uh, and that kind of thing. It's, it's really interesting, I think. And, and some of that speaks to kind of like the idea that kind of people that are being overpowered, if you like, by the US would inherently treat each other better that they would kind of maybe recognize themselves as allies that or cooperate in some form or another. Um, and actually, um, it, it seems to me, and um, this is kind of generally the how it's understood now, that it, it was almost more of a divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that, that you would encourage um, Native Americans and, um, uh, and, the, and the enslaved at this time to absolutely not work together. <laughs> <laughs> has the potential to be really dangerous in terms of challenging the status quo or kind of the US. So I, I suspect in that sense, that kind of, if we're thinking about that kind of exertion of power, not not that different variation as there always would have been between kind of individual um, slaveholders, but no clear indication at all that it was necessarily more humane. And it's it's interesting because then we end up with this kind of triangular structure, which is that because the Native American peoples of the Cherokee Nation at this time is also being quite disempowered. So that defensive position is is coming out of that huge exertion of power and expansion that the United States is endeavouring to do across the continent. So and they're 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 caught on, on the edge of that and are, are vulnerable to it, um, which is part of why they're kind of engaging in this mirroring you know, as a form of protection, it's kind of a way of saying, oh, we're not that different. Um, mm. You know, you can you try and treat us as equals? Can you try and treat us as as a nation rather than, yeah, um, it, you know, in the language of the time, kind of savages that can just be brushed aside. So it's all tied up in this really knotty web of power and, and in part of a, a means of ensuring they're not at the bottom is, mm. is, is keeping someone else below them. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring DC, Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash to book. Restrictions may apply. We, we get to the Civil War. Lincoln makes the Emancipation Proclamation. A couple of years later, Civil War ends. Slaves are free. If Cherokee Nation were, were simply mirroring their counterparts, mm. their white counterparts in the South, then surely at that point, the Cherokee freed people would go back to normal life. They would integrate fully into society. They wouldn't need to keep up this pretense anymore. These hierarchies wouldn't need to exist. It wasn't as easy as that, was it? No, no, exactly. So I think by the time the Civil War rolls around, um, actually these kind of power structures are entirely embedded. Cherokees, or at least the slaveholding Cherokees, are as invested in them as their white, white counterparts. So kind of you see um, racial prejudice in much much the same way. And so you're exactly right. Um, if this was all just a kind of a charade to make it look like... Um, uh, you know, all just the same, and that they weren't actually that bothered. Then, in theory, the civil war and emancipation and everything that came with that would clear the decks, and everyone could just be. Um, but that isn't at all how it plays out. So, you know, they they remain um, racially prejudiced against the formerly enslaved, um, and don't want to incorporate them 
Um, I mean, also ironically, a mirroring, I suppose, of what was happening in the US anyway, um, which is that kind of unwillingness to uh, fully incorporate the formerly enslaved across the US. Um, so there's a there's a huge similarity there, I think. So let's let's look at this like weird relationship that that then started to emerge between the, the Cherokee Nation. You had the, then the Cherokee mm. freed people who were slaves who were looking for citizenship and sort of reintegrate as as, as full members of society. But then you mm-hmm. also had the federal government who had their own agenda, not just against you know uh, the Native Americans, but in, in in the wake of like restoration and, and everything else. So how did that kind of play out for the new freed people? So. By the end of the Civil War, the relationship between the Cherokee Nation and the um, and the US is quite combat- combative, and it has been for a, like a long time. It's part of the problem, well, not problem, but that's nothing new. Um, it's been adversarial and aggressive for decades at this point. Um, so, you know, by by the Civil War, the Cherokees are um, have been forcibly relocated out to um, Indian Territory, so what's now Oklahoma. They've had to reconstitute themselves in a new alien place um, only for probably by the, the moment they've managed to, the dust has settled for civil war to erupt anyway. Um, so they're already in a defensive position with the US. And when the civil war hit, the Cherokees split along similar lines. So um, into uh, what's been known since as the Southern Cherokees who'd align themselves with the Confederacy and no surprises here that that included or was primarily made up of the slaveholding Cherokees, right? And the Confederacy is the is the is the um, is the side that will protect their interest, and presumably the side that they feel most aligned with, generally anyway, culturally, mm. versus uh, what was known as loyal Cherokees who allied themselves with the Union. So we see a similar split straight down the middle of the Cherokee Nation as we do um, with the Civil War. So. When that wraps up, there's a need to kind of not only reconcile between the US and the Cherokee Nation as a, as a whole, um, but also to bring those two halves of the Cherokee Nation back together as well. And the US uh, uses this opportunity to effectively, um, as leverage, to uh, further their agenda. Uh, so they require um, the Cherokees to emancipate all their slaves and they require them to uh, give them full membership, all, all the rights of Native Cherokees is how it's phrased in the, uh, in the treaty. So they have to sign this treaty between the Cherokees and the US. And then that treaty then stands as a document um, agreeing terms, terms of reconciliation, if you like, that ends um, hostilities between the Cherokees and the US. And that's the mechanism by which the federal government can kind of interfere in this dispute between Cherokees um, or the, the Cherokee um, kind of leadership and freed people. So they can kind of always for decades keep pointing back to it and say, we agreed that you would give your freed people all the rights of native Cherokees. So um, it lays the kind of foundations for this kind of ongoing dispute that just steadily gets more and more uh, hostile um, and more and more kind of um, antagonistic over the status of former slaves, which we see over the next 40 years or so. It's maybe the most divisive issue within the Cherokee Nation in, in the decades following the Civil War. 
Um, so I, I kind of, I see what you mean about the federal government's involvement and I, I kind of get what was in it for them. I don't understand what was in it for Cherokee Nation to essentially sacrifice Cherokee free people, people who were, by all intents and purposes, part of their community, be it former slaves or not. And they've just basically fed them to the government. What, like, what, what, was, what, what was in it for them? Some of it, I think, is that they've almost just settled into antagonism. Like, they refuse to agree. This whole dispute would have disappeared immediately if they'd said, great, we would love to have the free people back and we would love to give them all the rights mm. um, as everyone else. But, you know, so have, have them back on an entirely equal footing as other members. And in, if they had done that, the whole dispute goes away. It doesn't really matter that they, they've got those terms in the treaty because no one's no one is breaking them. There's nothing to argue about. So it's a, a, a missed opportunity to be able to kind of like own that situation. Mm. Um, and I think, in my opinion, um, what it really comes down to is, is two things. Some of it is just straightforward racism. Some of it is that they, they don't see those formerly enslaved people as part of their community. Um, and, and don't think that they should have to make room for them and incorporate them. They don't think that they should have to do that. It, like just inherently are like, well, those people are not Cherokees. And it's also um, uh, partly about uh, preserving their own decision making over who gets to be defined as Cherokee and who does not. So some of this is about, uh, or a lot of this is about self-government and saying um, to the US, we get to make our own decisions about who is Cherokee and who is not. Um, and we have decided that these people are not. Um, so it's really messy. And those things become increasingly entangled to the point where they're considered oppositional in, in nature, that to kind of to give in on this issue would be to kind of hand over the keys to the nation mm. and admit defeat. So those positions just become more and more entrenched, the more the US and the Cherokees knock heads, it just becomes harder and harder to give on this issue. Mm. Um, so that's why I think it doesn't go away. There is no easy uh, incorporation um, that they, they are quite clearly made unwelcome, at least by decision makers. Um, there, there are plenty of Cherokees that are delighted to see their neighbours return and want them to be fully incorporated and think that that is an entirely reasonable position so it's not kind of clear cut that, that there's kind of uh, necessarily prejudice against freed people and that's a kind of a blanket opinion but mm. the people that tended to be in power tended to think otherwise largely because they are they are the same old uh they come from the same families mm. um that were perhaps slave holding or at least the the kind of wealthy elite yeah. themselves the ones that kind of hold the power yeah politically um. find a fresh take on a fall getaway to wilmington north carolina and beaches enjoy hiking trails in a state park fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore then live it up along the Riverwalk in wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches carolina curie and wrightsville and a vibrant downtown you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. And I think it's it's interesting because 
I think there's a natural, almost almost discriminatory view of history that Native American history is 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 treated in a fairly two dimensional way. And when actually, when you when you you know dig down into it as as you have, you know you you look at any um, microcosm of society, and the same sort of prejudice, the same discrimination can play out within and the same hierarchies can develop within those pockets of society as well it's not it's you know it's it's interesting but as i I mentioned at at the start of this podcast you know people either look at native american history or they look at slavery there's i've seen very little uh, in fact i've seen no um work besides your own that kind of looks at that overlap between the two so i'm just wondering how we've remembered or, or not remembered Cherokee freed people uh, over time. So I think um, it's it's really interesting um, the way things kind of uh, disappear, and I think that kind of, like uh, entire stories disappear, or in this case, kind of a sort of a, a type of person, if you like. Um, so there's kind of um, a field known as Black Indian Studies, which is endeavouring to look at exactly that intersection between those two histories. Um, and it's uh, been uh, arguably uh, flourishing relatively in the last sort of, uh, let's say, 15 years or so, certainly 21st century, um, which is that people are starting to try and pick that apart and be like, well, if we if we view those histories in, in silos, how do we ever talk about black Cherokees who might have been kind of, you know, they uh, are kind of um, African in descent, uh, look black. Um, uh, but perhaps um, grew up speaking Cherokee and eating Cherokee food, very culturally Cherokee. Or, you know, like, how do you get at the question of, you know, for, for in that moment of becoming free um, back in the 1860s and the Civil War, why do they stay in the Cherokee nation instead of go somewhere else? If, and if we start to kind of assume that to be black in America is to be a certain kind of, uh, or to value certain things or have certain goals and, um, you 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 lose that potential variability, um, and in the same way for like native nations, they they are all different. Um, and if we view kind of Native American or American Indian as a sort of all encompassing term, and they are all entirely homogenous within that, um, so there's no difference between the Cherokees, the Choctaws, uh, the Sioux, then you you lose all of this detail, and and kind of uh, it becomes incredibly bland and unhelpful history let alone the variation within say the Cherokee nation Uh, what really struck me in my research was how split the nation continued to be so there was there was never a clear position about should we incorporate free people shouldn't we Um, how do we do that what rights do we give them and do we do we have to give them all the rights can we find a way to parcel out a sort of in-between almost citizenship no clear opinion and endless debate and that's happening ad infinitum um, across different nations different corners of the US different states different cities they're all having their own version of this um, but the specifics are are where the real kind of uh, interests lie for me um, how does power work in this situation that is different to what's happening in I don't know Charleston uh, it's a much more complicated space racially um culturally um it's a much more contested history the the land is more contested at, at this point this this kind of part of the world 
um, constant redrawing of boundaries, constant kind of displacement of people, uh, buying, selling all the time. Um, it, it's a, a, a rapidly changing landscape. But yeah, but there, there's certainly much more interest now. And, and some of that comes out of um, quite high profile cases in this area. So, you know, this, this dispute, my work is primarily interested in the sort of 40 years after the Civil War. So it, take, it took me through to Oklahoma statehood, basically. Uh, but what had brought it to my attention was a, um, a huge legal case uh, where, the, where Cherokee freed people sued the Cherokee Nation for discrimination and said that they had been denied their rights, which is a direct legacy of that historical moment. They are pointing to this treaty from 1866 and saying, you agreed there that we would have all the rights of native Cherokees and we would like them. And that's in, and we are entitled to them. And that's in, oh, 2004, 2007. Um, and there's been kind of it was a similar one for the Creeks and a similar one for the Choctaws. But that kind of stuff starts making kind of national, international headlines as a kind of a historical anomaly, but also a very current and very emotive uh, issue for those people. That's about their kind of identity and inclusion in their community and acknowledgement of why they belong there. And they're kind of standing up 150 later, in 150 years later saying, this isn't good, this isn't good enough. It's a, in a lot of respects, um, I mean, some of this history is really difficult. It's about discrimination. It's about exclusion. Um, it's about kind of uh, unreasonable expressions of power on various sides. But in other respects, for freed people, this is about a really long struggle to say, we are here and we're not going anywhere. And not only are we staying, but we want you to acknowledge us and to kind of make us full and valued members of your community and that's a hun- 150 years that's a that's a really powerful story of a, of a kind of uh, a battle for justice for, for those people and and kind of the numbers are not huge the size of the Cherokee Nation is not huge you know it was it was not huge at the time of the Civil War we're not talking about kind of hundreds of thousands of people but it's really important um yeah, I, I think there's there's a there's something very uh, there's a lot of positive stories um, tied up in here as well about kind of resistance and seeking justice and kind of not giving up um, that are important and could easily be lost as well. At least you know some of that is mirrors the civil rights movement we are familiar with, and and other parts of this history are very very different. Um, the context is different. Their struggle is different. Their, you know, uh, the time frame is is stretched in certain ways. So there's a lot tied up in this history that um, is very important. I think. This episode of America. A History Podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our guest this week, Dr. Andy Borden, and if you're interested to know more, you should check out some of the resources that we've added to the show notes. Additionally, if you can leave us a rating and review, that would make us feel awesome uh, and validate all the hard work that goes into making this podcast. Next time... 
we take a look at one of the Republican presidential candidates for 2024, as I'm joined by Dr. Emma Long to answer, who is Ron DeSantis? <laughs> 